Welcome back to your listener. This is Charlotte, Creative and Technical Director here at Evidence for Faith. Now, we are starting a brand new series this week. I hope you really enjoyed our last one on Jonah. This next one is going to be a lot more heavy on the science and math side of things. We're still going to have a whole lot of scripture. There's also going to be a whole lot of science. The reason for that is because the next eight episodes on the podcast are actually going to be the eight sessions that we recorded at our creation seminar last October in New Glarus. So if you really wanted to go to that and you missed it, don't worry. We're releasing that now. So we're still going to be sticking to our two episodes a week schedule for this uh, series. And if you're listening and you're thinking, man, I'd really like to see what he's talking about because some of this stuff can be very visual. I will be releasing the video recordings of this on our YouTube, Facebook, and Rumble channels. The PowerPoints aren't going to be delayed just by a little bit just because I'm still working on some on the website and making some improvements. And I'm not entirely sure when that's going to be done. So if you really want to see the visuals for this particular series, I would highly recommend go watching the videos on our channels. As always, this program is supported by generous donors. If you would like to help us keep this programming free, you can donate at evidenceforfaith.org slash give. And without further ado, here is Michael in the introduction of our creation seminar. Yes, I am so glad to be here, as Daryl says, from all the injuries I've had. And Daryl, I just had both my toes operated on. (laughs) So with all this going on, I'm glad to be anywhere vertical. You know, just, you know, McDonald's, okay, wherever. Subway, wherever, you know, as long as I'm vertical. So uh, as people come on in, um, I got to tell you, I'm, I'm a storyteller. I'm a classroom teacher formerly. I used to be a um, I've done a lot of different type of um, things in my life. Uh, I started off as a teacher. I taught for almost 25, well, around 25 years, public and um, Christian schools, mostly in public. Um, I've also taught first grade through college um, in my teaching career. I worked at the Shedd Aquarium. I don't know if you ever heard of it, downtown Chicago, a lot of fish there. Um, so I've done that. I've worked as a research scientist as in fisheries genetics down at Southern Illinois University in Carbondale. So I've been down there, go Salukis. Um, actually, I could care less about Salukis. <laughs> anyway, um, but uh, what I want to do tonight is sort of talk to you about adding evidence to your faith. And if you don't have faith, to give you some reasons to believe. That's what we're going to do. Just to, to start off here, let me give you a little short story. Just recently, I went and was talking with a couple of different adults, different occasions, um, but pretty close together time-wise. And one of them, both of them claimed to be Christians. And as I was having this discussion with this one guy in particular, um, he said, uh, so you used to teach biology. I said, yeah, I'm a biologist. And he goes, okay, um, I get that. Um, I said, so what do you think? Because I know you claim to be a Christian stuff. I said, do you believe that the Bible is the inerrant word of God? I asked him that. And he says, oh, yes, I believe that the Bible is the inerrant word of God. I said, how do you stand on Genesis 1 through 11? Ooh, he goes. And I go, what? And he goes, I hate that you brought that up because I don't know about that. I don't know if I can really trust those chapters to be historical, uh, historical stories, to be accurate. And I said, well, didn't you just say you believe that the Bible's in the word of God? He says, yeah, I do. But that, that chapter 1 of Genesis into chapter 2, I, I really struggle with. I don't know if that's real. And the other person I was talking to said basically the same thing. She says, oh, yeah, I believe in the Bible. I don't think there's any, science or any type of errors in the Bible. I believe, believe the Bible was given directly from God. Ask the question, so how do you stand on the first 11 chapters of Genesis? And, again, I got the same response. She goes, I... I don't know how to answer that. Doesn't that sound like a problem? Do you see a contradiction here? I believe that the Bible is the inspired word of God, inerrant, but when you ask them about the first 11 chapters of our Bible, I'm not sure I can believe that. Well, to me, that's sad. But I can totally understand that. Being a person who has worked in science myself, as a scientist, I know these kind of things are difficult at times. You have the news media, which we all know is so reliable for accurate information. <clears throat> yeah. 
but that is constantly telling us different things about um, science and just overlooking. They don't go into the Bible whatsoever. Universities, even public schools, believe it or not, Christian universities, will teach us that the Bible's, the first 11 chapters of Genesis in particular, is not real, that it's all allegory. It's just the stories and stuff. So there's where we start to run into the problem. And I went to, I grew up in a very strong Christian home, and in this home, I grew up as what would be called a creationist. I believed in the, in the Bible, the six days of creation being 24-hour days. That's what I was raised with. I went to a Christian university. While at the Christian university, my Christian professors convinced me, and this is not unusual for Christian universities, most of them do this, they teach what's called theistic evolution, that God uses and used Darwinian evolution to form everything. And they switched me over because I was naive enough uh, as a um, undergrad that I would not question my professors. And if I did, they always had a good comeback, which then I could not respond to. It wasn't until I worked in research in fisheries genetics that I started to really find out things because fisheries genetics, I worked in the field of Darwinian evolution and trying to see how this one species of fish evolved into another. That was my master's thesis was putting this together. And I started running into all sorts of problems with this. So as we get into this, I want to show you reasons to believe that I now believe beyond a shadow of doubt that the Bible is absolutely correct, that the Genesis account is totally historical fact. And I'm not just doing this by faith. I mean, a lot of people, that's what they go on. They just go on faith. I am going to give you, particularly tomorrow afternoon, oh, if, if you fall asleep tonight, I'll excuse it. If you miss tomorrow morning, I might excuse it. If, if, you, if you miss tomorrow afternoon, you're going you're gonna to really miss the thing because that's where I'm going to get into statistics and all sorts of straight-on evidence, both in doctrine and in science and mathematics. Yes, those two fields to show you that the Bible is actually correct. That's tomorrow afternoon. I mean, this is going to be so cool. You don't want to miss that one. But the thing is, a lot of people, if you're, gonna, if you're not going to believe in the creation account of being six 24-hour days, what are you left with? You're left with theistic evolution, that the days of creation took long periods of time. And so they use evolution to fill these. They try and tell us that the days in the book of Genesis were millions of years, epochs or eras of long period of time. Well, there's problems with this, that we, if you just read the Bible and listen to things like biology textbooks, uh, which I'm going to be referring to this one frequently. This is Miller Levine. Um, this is the number one, well, there's a newer edition out now, but this was the number one selling biology book in the United States. So I'm taking the number one seller that more schools use than any other, any other textbook of biology, and I'm going to take quotes out of this through this weekend and show you all sorts of problems that they can't explain, but they just throw in language without you even noticing it. And they make assumptions, and they present their assumptions as fact. That's what we're going to get into. Now, did God mean evolution? Is that what he was talking about when he said that he was the creator? When he said he created, could he have just been saying, because the word evolution hadn't evolved yet, so, sort of a joke there, um, but that word hadn't come up yet, so is that what he meant? Well, there's problems with this whole thing. I believed, and this is what I was taught, and I held to this for, for years. For uh, over a decade, I held to this. Actually, it was the help of a Nobel laureate that I had dinner with one night who worked in this field, and he's the guy who started convincing me that, there's th that this whole idea of God using evolution as the six days of creation, that that's not true. His name was Dr. Sidney Fox. He's now deceased. Um, brilliant scientist, and I'll refer to him a number of times um, in this presentation. But in Genesis, it's specifically, I just want to point out a few things in Genesis to you here. And if you didn't bring a Bible tonight, no, no worries, because I'm going to show you all sorts of Bible scriptures. When I use a scripture, in most cases, I'll throw it up here. Um, but in the book of Genesis 1, we see where God is saying God called the, the light and uh, the light day, the darkness, he called night. So you see, we have night. And then there was evening, morning, one day. You get to verse 8, evening, morning, second day. Verse 13, evening, morning, third day. You see how this continues. Could this mean literally millions of years? Or billions of years is what is many people and even Christians, and believe it or not, even pastors sometimes from churches preach from the pulpit. 
I'm aware just of a couple of years ago, a large church, I won't say where, in Wisconsin, though, the pastor got up on a Sunday morning and he taught from the pulpit that the days of creation were done by, they are not 24-hour year, or days, they are millions and billions of years old. Split the congregation right in half. Matter of fact, it split his church. Because a lot of people said, that's not true, that's not right. Well, if you're saying that day one represented, say, like the Big Bang, that would be like 15 billion years ago. Um, then they say that water covered the earth, you know, and, and stuff. And, and we start running into things. Well, stars then formed on the second day. That would be like 10 billion years long. And then the sun was formed 5 billion years. That would be like the third day. You see where we're going here? Um, the molten earth would have been about 4.5 billion years ago. Then we have the first oceans uh, 3.8 billion years ago. Now, the top line that you see up here is representing what science tells us. And many Sad to say, many Christians now accept this as being the way it is. They couldn't be more wrong. And I'm going to prove that to you in a lot of different ways here, both using doctrine, but also using science itself. Because it does not, if you'll notice, it does not uh, coincide with what we see on the bottom row here as the days of creation. We're here on day one and two, we have the earth just covered in water. Day three, we have dry plants. Then you have the sun, the moon. Um, then you have the sea creatures. You can see they do not fit. And we will see this frequently as we go along. Um, let me put it into a chart. Whenever you're doing a comparison as a teacher, when you're going to compare two different um, ideas or concepts or ob objectives, make a T-chart. So here's a T-chart. You can see the evolution side to the biblical creation side right out of the Bible. Um, the sun before the earth. That would, this is what they teach now. This is how the formation, uh, to how we got from nothing to where we are today. Sun came before the earth. According to the biblical story, earth came before the sun. Dry land before the seas. Bible says sea before the dry land. How many times, though, I keep hearing and kept hearing that the days of creation as described in the Bible are actually matching what you see in evolution. And I just accepted this for years. You can start to see they don't line up. They're in, they're in opposite. They're, they're not in, in relation to each other. Atmosphere, they will teach, came before the sea. The sea, according to the Bible, came before the atmosphere. Sun came before light is what science often teaches. Now, in the Bible, it says light on earth before the sun. Now, some people get a little hung up on this one. Well, if there's going to be plants, you're going to keep going down here. You're going to see stars before the earth. No, the Bible says earth before the stars. Earth, um, same time as the planets. Planets before, uh, earth before the planets. Uh, marine creatures before and stuff. You, see, you start to see there's some different things here. But some people say, well, how could the earth not have, uh, how could things grow if the sun wasn't really um, doing all of this, uh, shining on the earth and stuff? Well, God gives off glory. God gives off life. Scientifically, it cannot be explained. There's a thing called Shekinah glory. Most of you have probably heard of this. Here's an example of it in 2 Chronicles chapter 7, verses 1 through 3. When Solomon finished praying, fire came down from heaven and consumed the, the burnt offerings and the other sacrifices, and the Lord's glory filled the temple. The priests couldn't go into the Lord's temple because of the Lord's glory it had filled the Lord's temple. When the Israelites saw the fire come down, um, and the Lord's glory on the temple, they knelt down with their faces on the pavement. He, he worshiped and praised the Lord, or they worshiped and praised the Lord. He is good. His mercy endures forever. This is talking about a light. What type of light? Not the menorah inside the tabernacle. There was some supernatural light occurring. God does this. One of the classic examples is the transfiguration mentioned in the Gospels. Here's Matthew's account. After six days, Jesus took Peter, James, and John, the brother of James, and led them up on a high mountain where uh, they could be alone. Jesus' appearance changed in front of them. His face became as bright as the sun. As bright as the sun. God gives off light. So when people say that, well, certain things couldn't have formed in the way that the biblical account is because the sun's not formed yet, yet you're seeing things appearing and life starting to appear, well, God is present and God gives off light. What kind of light? I don't know. What kind of, is it photons of light energy? I don't know. All we know is that there, God, when he is present and manifested at, at times, he gives off this glowing light. It could sustain life. We don't know what it's like. It's not described. It's, it's beyond what science can explain. Too often, science tries to take the entire cosmos, the entire universe, and sort of make it like into a box. 
And the thing is, everything, according to science, is inside the box, except God, because science, in most cases, will not accept that there's a God. So what are they trying to do? In science, we try to see what's inside the box, the matter in the box, the uh, organisms in the box, the materials in the box, and we try to explain it without the presence of God. And science is trying to explain what's going on in here without God. Now, the thing is, they've already made an assumption. There's no God. You're going to see this a lot. A lot of times when science makes assumptions and tries to teach us something, they're telling us without, without us even knowing it, Okay, God is not part of the equation. It cannot be used. So you can't go to God. So what is science left with? Just the laws of science. Can the laws of science explain itself? Science thinks so. No, it can't. How do you explain the Shekinah glory of God? How do you explain Jesus walking on water? I mean, yeah, we live in Wisconsin. People walk on the water in the wintertime all the time. That was not winter. I've been on the Dead Sea, or on the Red, or what do you call that, Sea of Galilee many times. I'm not walking across that. I'd sink like a rock. Um, Jesus healing people, bringing people back from the dead. You're going to tell me that science can explain this? No, they can't. They're called miracles. Miracles do happen. Well, what's a miracle? Something that you can't answer from inside the box. What science fails to see is God created everything in the box and the box. He is in here and he is out here. He is everywhere. But science won't go that route. They don't like that one. But continuing with our list here, you can see marine creatures before land plants. No, the Bible says land plants before the marine creatures. Earthworms before starfish is what is taught in the evolutionary ideas. No, according to the Bible, starfish were formed before earthworms. The point I'm making here is you cannot use Darwinian evolution and actually take the days of, uh, of creation and say this is how God did it. They don't line up. That was my first big uh, epiphany of knowledge here about this whole thing, where I started to say, something's wrong with this theory. This is not working. Yes, for a long time, I was a theistic evolutionist. I believed that God used this. I never caught this. How many times I read my Bible, I never caught this problem. But it is a serious problem. Darwinian evolution and theistic evolution are not compatible in order with the Bible. They don't fit. You're going to run into problems if you sit and study it. The days of creation will not fit what they teach in this book. The timelines are different. When things appear, when life appears, it's different. You can't use this, though most people don't want to go there. They don't want to think about it. Darwinian evolution and theistic evolution are not compatible. Also in doctrine, which is what I'm going to talk about tomorrow in the first session in the afternoon. Doctrine is affected by this theory. Theistic evolutionists often don't realize, and the conversation I had with the, with the guy um, at, at the beginning of my story here was I said, well, how do you explain these doctrinal points then? And as I kept explaining things to him, just Christian doctrine um, having to do with the resurrection, why did Christ have to come, all sorts of things like this, he was like, I don't, I don't know how to answer this. I've never thought about this. The girl the same way. She, matter of fact, the girl says, I don't want to talk about this because I can't figure it out. What's the problem here? Neither one of them's fully trusting in the Bible. They're not fully trusting in God. Now, I'm not saying, do not, do not put this in my mouth. Because sometimes people have said, oh, okay, Michael, you're teaching that you have to be a creationist to be a Christian. No, you don't. I was a theistic evolutionist. I was a Christian. I was saved. But I was totally wrong in my doctrine. Um, most Christians are somewhere wrong in a lot of times in doctrine. You don't believe me? Just watch a different ch bunch of different church services. <laughs> yeah. Or read a bunch of books from different pastors. Sometimes you get some really bizarre things. But do you guys realize this? This, this is so important. Darwinian evolution requires death as the creative agent. Do you, do you know that? You've heard survival of the fittest, correct? Sort of a synonym, a way of Darwinian evolution. Survival of the fittest, in other words, the dying of the weak. That's what runs Darwinian evolution. In Christianity and in Judaism, death was not part of God's creation. No, that's not his design. That was not his desire. He puts Adam and Eve here and says, okay, enjoy yourselves for a while because you're all going to die. He doesn't say that in Scripture. He, they were created to live forever because they were made in his image and they were perfect. They were holy at this point before sin entered the picture. These two things don't go together. So doctrine... <laughs> 
That's a problem, but also getting into the idea that death is what runs evolution. Now, a lot of people don't think of it that way, but as a biologist, this is the way we view it. You have to have predator-prey relationships, animals killing other animals, et cetera, et cetera, to, to get rid of the weaker gene pools. So it, when this is all taking place, what's God saying? Ooh, that's good. Oh, Roadrunner finally got caught by the coyote. Good coyote. That's perfect. I don't think he was saying that. But that's what people often think of. Look at this verse. Romans 5.12. Paul, under the influence of the Holy Spirit, this is out of the New American Standard, word-for-word translation, it says this. Therefore, just as through one man sin entered into the world, and death through sin, so the death spread to all mankind because all sinned. Explain that one by a theistic evolutionist, by the process of Darwinian evolution. It's not compatible. To Darwinian evolutionists, we've had millions of years of death before man even appears. Here, Paul, under the influence of the Holy Spirit, is writing that death enters the world through sin. Sin caused death. That's why Christ had to come and die because of the sin. What, he just came down to earth and died for the fun of it? I don't think so. Death entered the world through the sin of one man. This is a theme Paul talks about frequently, but none clearer, more clear than Romans 5.12. Now, I approached one gal uh, one time with, more than one time, but uh, this one in particular, I approached this person, theistic evolutionist, who does not believe, she admitted, she didn't believe in the inerrancy of the Bible, but she did believe that Jesus Christ is the Son of God and everything. I don't know if she's a Christian. I don't doubt it, but her, her beliefs are sort of infantile. But she, I pointed this verse out to her, and she says, well, it says here, um, and she says, I heard this in college, that the, our, our biology professor said, as, uh, just as one man's sin entered into the world, she says the world there, our professor says, is mankind. How many have ever heard that before? That expression that this verse is talking about sin entering mankind, not the world, but mankind. I'm amazed because this is something that's very, very common. I hear this all the time. Go back to the ancient Greek on this. The word world is the word cosmos. It's not the word in Greek for man. That would be anthropos. God is specifically, and Greek is such a specific language, he is telling us that sin entered the world. Death entered the world because of sin. That's why Christ had to come and take care of it. And Paul goes on talking about how sin messed everything up, and you finally get to Romans 8.22, and he says, For we know that the whole creation, doesn't say mankind, all of creation groans and suffers the pains of childbirth. The The whole cosmos is suffering because of what Adam and Eve did. You don't believe me? You don't think the world's suffering? Turn on the news. Pick up a newspaper. Turn on the radio. Oh, my gosh. All the terrible things going on. The earth is crying out for its redemption, too, because it's coming. This is what this is talking about. But did God use evolution? I love this cartoon from Answers in Genesis. Um, I love this. Did God use evolution? Did our creator use a process that requires millions of years of death and brutal killings? And each day he's saying, oh, that's good. Ooh, that one killed that one. That's good. That's perfect. Oh, that's perfect. And survival of the fittest until finally God creates Adam and Eve, puts them in there, and God saw what he had made, and behold, it was very good. Does that sound like the Genesis count? I mean, it's a cartoon, but doctrinally, that's correct. When you understand what Darwinian evolution is saying, what theistic evolutionists are saying. The gal I was just talking about, she says, yes, the earth is billions of years old. Animals were killing each other. All of this was going on, and And that's the way it was. And that's how all these different days are represented in the Bible. And I said, how in the world can you view all of these creatures killing each other as being good and perfect? Which is what God says in Genesis. I said, how do you do that? She says, I don't know. Is it possible there's something wrong with your doctrine? Is there something wrong with the way you're viewing the Bible? But it's, it's just so odd that this is happening. And it's happening a lot in our Christian world. Well, what's the opposite of this? Well, is there a designer? Design, if you see design, design is evidence of a creator. I mean, think about it. Any type of 
um, book cover putting together here with this book. We see there's a design. Actually, there's a, I, I published a couple of books, and as I go through the publisher, we have a book cover editor that actually does design. We have another person who does the pages in the book and sets up the pages design. So we have that. There's design. You can see it doesn't happen by random chance. Uh, Darwinian evolution says everything happened by random chance. There is no designer because there is no God. Darwinian evolution is based upon, and let me give you the definition that I'm using here for evolution, working as an evolutionist, publishing in the field as an evolutionist years ago. This is Darwinian evolution. Random chance mutations being added to the genome, to the DNA, that benefits the organism. That's Darwinian evolution in a nutshell. There's Darwin's book. There it is, right there. Random chance mutations being added to the genome that benefits the organism. We're going to see there's problems with this because you know something? You can't prove that. Matter of fact, I'm going to disprove that. It's not that hard. Why do evolutionists use the term random in that definition? There's no God. If you use the word random, you're denying automatically, remember what I said with the box? You, you can't have God as part of the equation whatsoever. So random denies that there's a designer. They remove God from the process. That's why you never hear about it that way. Um, there's a problem, though, with this. Classic book. This is very easy to read. If you want, you can get a copy of it. It's like about $11 uh, paperback, small paperback on Amazon. It's a great book. Um, it's called The Unrandom Universe. In the 1990s, scientists discovered, it was mathematicians and physicists, who discovered that random does not occur in the universe. There's no such thing as random. Did you know that? Do you know that I can flip a coin? And it'll come up heads or tails. Okay, it came up heads that time. I flip it again. Came up tails that time. We say, okay, this is randomly happening. Actually not. People have used dice. Scientists have actually used dice. Uh, this is probably going to make Las Vegas in, in a lot of trouble. But using dice, they have found out that dice don't work. I'm sorry, I hit the wrong button on a slide. Um, that dice often have molecular um, impurities in it that... If you roll the dice over and over like a billion times, it will show you that there's a pattern to it. You can't make it random. There is no random. You ever see the movie? I'm sure you all have. Jurassic Park? Now, I'm talking about the first one. Okay, the first one. The one with the T-Rex is running all over the place. Okay. Do you remember as they're riding in the cars and before the dinosaur gets loose, they're just riding in the cars, they're just riding through and everything. Um, it's still daytime. And Jeff Goldblum, or whatever his name is, is sitting in the back seat, and there's a, another scientist sitting in the front, and he talks about a theory called chaos. Chaos is actually based on this, that there is no random. And he describes that. He takes a drop of water, puts it on her hand, lets it run down. If you remember this movie, runs down. Just, and he says, hold your hand flat, puts a drop of water, starts to run down. He's, and he asks her, why do you think it ran that way? I don't know. Says, now we're going to take this, another drop of water, put it there. What do you think it'll do? It'll probably take a different channel. And he drops it, and it goes in a different direction than what she thought. How come? He says, that's the theory of chaos. It's the theory of no random. Because what's happening is, without you thinking, the muscles in your, um, in the, the, your arm here and in your hand, um, the tendons, the connective tissue, the tactile hairs, etc., actually are influenced every few minutes by temperature and other things that will design a pattern for this. It's not random. Random does not exist. We're going to come back and talk about that a little bit more later. But random does not exist. And that is a major problem with this. So how did life originate on Earth then? If there is no random, well, this is the theory that they come up with. This is what's in these books. Whole chapter in the book on this, starting on page 340 in this book. In 1924, Alexander Oparin, he's a Russian scientist, proposed that life on Earth originated from various chemicals on an early Earth. This is billions of years ago. Chemicals, and he named some, uh, carbon monoxide, carbon dioxide. There is no oxygen, free oxygen, on the early Earth, they said. Um, hydrogen would be present. Nitrogen would be present. Ammonia 
and H4 would be present. Methane, CH4, would be present. And if you put all this together, Oparin, in 1924, says this could stimulate making life by making amino acids. Now, if I just lost you with the words amino acids, or if you're British, amino acids, whichever one you wish, uh, amino acids are little building blocks that make up protein. There's 20 essential amino acids. Just go to any health foods uh, department. They'll tell you that, the 20 essential amino acids. Actually, there's hundreds and hundreds of amino acids. But only 20 are found in all living things, from bacteria to the most complicated life form on the planet today, the human female. Ladies, that's a compliment. If you take these 20 amino acids and you break the, um, you take them and you start assembling, like this is one amino acid, say it's proline. We hook this one on here and it snaps on and it gets bound to this thing. Then we take another one and put it on here. We make a chain of amino acids. What we eventually get is a thing called a protein. Then it has a specific shape. I'm just randomly just putting this thing together like this. Um, okay, say the shape was supposed to look like this. This protein made up of hundreds of amino acids. And now, um, this, they said, since we are made of protein, almost your entire body's composed of protein. From your hair on your head to your toenails and your feet, you are made of protein, made of amino acids. So Oparin's saying, to get life, we have to have amino acids. So he comes up with this equation for, for how life could form. He says, I think you could make amino acids for living things if we make this thing on the early Earth. Well, in 1929, just a few years later, we have the British biologist J.D.S. Uh, Haldane. He proposes, taking Oparin's ideas also, I'm working upon that, that this chemical uh, composition could form amino acids. And if it did, they would fall because there'd be lightning and stuff and volcanoes. It would fall into the ocean. And he gave us the term the primordial soup. That's where it came from. Now, the primordial soup is full of amino acids. So in 1953, just like 30 years later, not even that. Two biochemists from the University of Chicago won a Nobel Prize. Their names were Stanley Miller and Harold Urey, both biochemists. Biology, chemistry, chemistry, buried together. These guys are brilliant guys. They're not dumb. And they realize the whole point is trying to make amino acids. If we can make amino acids, then we have the building blocks of a protein, which is what living things are made of. So they set up a little laboratory at the University of Chicago, sort of like this. You see this in every biology textbook. <clears throat> they have this primordial soup, the, fluid, uh, the water in here. They put in nitrogen, ammonia, all those different chemicals that Oparin said were there. They add an electrical spark inside. Notice the system is totally closed. It's all sealed up. So they put sparks in there to represent lightning in the sky. And then they added a, hot, um, uh, a burner down at the bottom here that you can see to apply heat for like volcanoes, which would heat up the water. And they ran this for a couple hours. Wow, almost according to their papers and according to his book, miraculously, <coughs> amino acids form. Yeah, they got a couple of amino acids. A few amino acids actually formed here. And in doing so, they won the Nobel Prize for this. And you see this type of thing in here all the time. Is this evidence that life can come from non-living chemicals? By the way, you know something else they don't tell you about this experiment? It, you will not find this in any biology book. Let me go back for a second and show you the slide. This is just... This is crazy. In the soup, in that soup, the primordial ocean, where like they say life formed, the first cells formed. It just didn't make a couple of amino acids. Remember I told you was, there's hundreds of amino acids? 20 essential, 20 different types that are just repeated over and over, found in living things. Most other amino acids are very poisonous to living things. They got a whole pile of them. That's not mentioned in the book. Also, what formed? Hydrogen cyanide. The ocean would be filled with hydrogen cyanide. Now, if you're not into hydrogen cyanide, I mean, don't go out and buy it. <coughs> um, the government will be all over you. But what it is, is a very potent toxin that will kill you instantly. That's why they use it in spy movies. James Bond things and stuff, a little cyanide capsule, you crunch it, you die instantly. That's cyanide. How many living things live in cyanide? Uh, that's not all. What else is in there is another chemical called formaldehyde. You remember that one? That's what we used to put 
animals in in biology class. And you just take it out, and the kids go, oh, now give me gloves, and all this kind of stuff to dissect and things. We don't use formaldehyde in schools anymore because it's a cancer-causing agent. They use something else now. But still, the medical field uses formalin. When you go in and have a biopsy, they put the, they'll take the cells out of your body that they're going to test. They put in a little vial full of what's called formalin. That's formaldehyde mixed with water. And they put it in there. Why? It kills the cells, but it freezes them in the exact position they are. And so now they can be stained and sectioned and looked under a microscope to see what you got. And they can tell if you got cancer or whatever. But that's what the chemical is. So the ocean is full of cyanide. The ocean's full of... Um, <laughs> Uh, formaldehyde. And there's a great book. If you want to read, it's called Predest uh, Biochemical Predestination. talks all about this experiment. Um, written by a guy named uh, Dean Kenyon. He's now dead, deceased. By the way, he became a Christian later on and totally um, denied and denounced his own book. He says this is not true. This is the book that is used in some universities to this day trying to show you how by, uh, Darwinian evolution first formed life on the planet. They used this. He said, there's no way possible this could work. The guy who authored it. But they still use that. So, is there evidence? Well, man has tried to determine where life came from on the planet. Remember, we don't have God in the equation. So if we don't have God in the equation, how are we going to do it? Well, the only thing we can do is look to see what's inside the box. There's not much in here can tell us this. So they're trying to come up with all different types of ways to figure it out. Life coming from non-living things is called spontaneous generation. Or if you want to be technical, it's called abiogenesis. That's like just putting a bunch of chemicals together in a soup, and all of a sudden, boom, you have cells. Now, biology books make fun of this. And they will tell you, this doesn't take place. Matter of fact, there's been science experiments that have been going on for years. Francisco Reddy, back in 1668, did an experiment saying, because they used to teach that if you leave meat out, it'll turn into maggots. He says, they don't, the meat doesn't turn into maggots. No, flies land on the meat, lay eggs, and so then th that's where you see the maggots come from. They said, no, you're wrong. He says, I'll prove it. So he set up this little experiment. This one here, he had the flies coming in, maggots form. This one here, he just put a rubber stopper on top or a cork stopper. No maggots. But the scientific community says, well, of course there's no maggots. You cut off the air supply. They all died. I'm not making this up. <laughs> so he said, okay. I guess he went over to a window screen, cut it out of a hole, <laughs> and put it on top of a jar, put something like a rubber band across it. So now he could let air go through here. Still yet, there was no meat. Do you think he got applauded? And everybody accepted, wow, he proved. Spontaneous generation, life coming from non-living things, doesn't take place. No. That was cute. Magic trick or something, but that, we don't believe it. A hundred years later, we come across another person. His name is Lozano Spallanzini. He does the same thing. He says this whole spontaneous generation, life coming from non-living things, no, no, it doesn't work. In 1768, he did an experiment using beef broth. He took beef broth, put it in a flask, boiled it, let it sit for a few days, and all of a sudden, after about a week or so, there's all sorts of little things moving around in there. So people said, see, life is coming from non-living things. But he says, no, something's getting in here. So he put a stopper on the thing, did the experiment again, and it didn't. Of course, they said, well, you just cut off the air supply. So again, that didn't convince the scientific community. This went on for another 100 years. Finally, around the time of our American Civil War, in Europe, they offered a prize to anybody who could prove, without a shadow of a doubt, that life coming from non-living things does not take place, that spontaneous generation does not occur. It was be the Christian scientist, not religion, just saying. He's a Christian. He was also a scientist, probably the greatest scientist of the uh, 19th century, Louis Pasteur. He designed, and these are actually a couple of his flasks. He took a flask, filled it with beef broth, boiled it, but he bent the top of it, leaving the flask open, because Pasteur said little dust particles, when you see dust particles falling down, they carry bacteria. Bacteria are getting inside of this. If this is just open, bacteria can get inside of here, and it will cause that. He says, I'll leave the air supply open. The tube is open, this glass flask. And dust particles get in here, but they can't get in here. they got to have this little bend in it. So notice, like on this one, these are some of his originals. Uh, they still have them in museums today. In some cases, they have sat for long periods of time. He let his sit for many years, and it stayed sterile because he proved life just doesn't form out of nothing. You have to have life come from life. A dear friend of his, Rudolf Virchow, who helped form the cell theory, that cell is the basic unit of structure and function in life, Rudolf Virchow was a Christian, too, and he said, yeah, to have life, you have to have it come from a living thing. 
So I used to do this experiment when I taught school. We did it like uh, a couple of years. I had the students, gave all my students a flask, told them, showed them how to with a Bunsen burner, build the, uh, heat the glass up. You, know, you ever done this in school and you know, over a Bunsen burner, take glass tubing, you can stretch it and have all sorts of fun with it. Um, how many kids get burned? That's beside the point. But as we do this, it's, it's a lot of fun, as long as you make a little hook in it. So we used apple juice. So the first, year, first couple of days of the school year, we put apple juice in a flask. We sterilized the flask. But they've also made this little, I don't care what shape, as long as there's a little hook in it. And it's still open. And they did this. And then we put it on the shelves. And we waited till the end of the school year. And then we opened them up. And I told the students, you get an A for this experiment if you drink it. There's usually one or two like, are you sure? Take a drink. Tastes like apple juice. It's not turned into vinegar because it's still sterile. Pasteur proved it. He won the prize. So this is all in a biology book. So here they're saying life does not come from life. If living things can only come from other living things, so how did the first living cells begin? Obviously, it's not from chemicals. So how did it happen? What goes on? Well, <laughs> let me give you the answer that's in here. This comes right after Pasteur's experiment. This is what Miller and uh, wrote in his textbook. The answer is simple. Today's Earth is a very different planet from the one that exists billions of years ago. On primitive Earth, there were no bacteria to break down organic compounds, nor was there any oxygen to react with the organic compounds. As a result, organic compounds could accumulate over millions of years, that's untestable, over millions of years, forming that original organic soup Today, however, such compounds, the reason it's not happening today that we don't see this, such compounds cannot re, uh, remain intact in the natural world long enough uh, period of time to give life another start. In other words, we can't sit and experiment with this stuff for millions of years. That's the answer. Oh, that's real simple. That's double talk. He's teaching, writing in this book, to gullible minds, this is how life formed. And I love how he said at the beginning, oh, it's simple. The answer to that question is really simple. <sighs> yep. Since the 1980s, by the way, and it was Dr. Sidney Fox who pointed this out to me, the Nobel laureate that started getting my mind working on this. He said, did you know, Michael? Because I referred to this Oparin hypothesis and Ur Miller and Urey's experiment and all that and the pictures and things. And I said to him, I don't understand this. They formed amino acids. He's the one who told me, you got to find out what all was formed in there cyanide and stuff. He says, nothing's going to live in that. And he says, by the way, the chemicals that Oparin came up with in Haldane on the early Earth in the 1980s, NASA, usually a lot of smart people working there, NASA stated that the early Earth most likely did not have the chemicals that Oparin and Haldane said that it had to have in the atmosphere. Thus, this whole thing is just a, it's just a fake. It's just a cool experiment. And really, Miller and Urey knew you had to have carbon, you had to have hydrogen, you had to have um, uh, oxygen molecules. They knew you had to do that to build amino acid because we all know the composition of amino acid. It was a set-up experiment, but they don't show you that in the textbook. They show it as being the way life formed on the planet, which is sad. Now, I believe God is alive. I believe that he is the designer. If there's a design, there's a designer. Let me show you an example of what I'm talking about. Look at this beautiful picture. You see much on here besides this? It's still wrapped in plastic. We shop sometimes at Hobby Lobby. Really cool picture here, huh? Now, how come I can just set this here and a picture doesn't form? Well, what if I let it sit for a million years? What if I let it sit for two million years? Will, ke will chemicals start forming pictures and stuff? What does this show you? Ten points, anybody can figure out where this is. It's in Florida. St. Augustine. You guys got to get out of Wisconsin sometime, man. Gee, really cool fort. <laughs> My daughter, Michaela, painted this uh, some years ago for me. And the thing, do you see this is a design? Do you know if you were to come down or come up here and look at this carefully, you can see the brush strokes on this? The brush strokes of a designer? If there's a design, there's a designer. If there's a plan, there's a planner. 
If there's a design, if there's a plan, there's a God. And we're going to come back to that little phrase a little bit later on. Let me just show you design. Then we're going to take a short little break here. I want to show you some evidence of design using my microscope. So we're going to switch this over. I've got a few slides I just want to show you things, and I want to try and get you to see the design of these things. Now, this first picture on this slide, these are dead. They're not moving around. They were once alive. They were once alive. The problem is uh, they're dead now. How many of you have ever swam in the ocean? Oh, man, some of you guys got to get out more. Gee, I know Madison's a big city, but come on. <laughs> there's, there's other states in the Union. <laughs> these are called radiolarians. They're little microscopic things that when you swim in the ocean, they sometimes get on your body. Get a little drop of water in your mouth, just swallow down. Ooh, that was fun. You're getting stuff like this in you. It's okay. These don't hurt you. Now, what we're going to do, notice that they're clear. This is unstained. This is what they look like. I'm going to go to higher power, higher magnification, and show you some fascinating things. This, notice there's a lot of different shapes. But look at the shapes of these guys. They're absolutely amazing. And I focus this in. Do you see a design? Isn't that cool? By the way, do you know what these things are made of? Glass. Silicon dioxide. Like what windows are made of. Did you know that creatures can secrete glass? The little holes you see are where they have these like pseudopod things, these little arms, sticky arms that go out and they capture bacteria and plankton in the water and they pull it in and they eat that stuff. And that's what they consume. But look at the, the intricate designs of these things. Oh my gosh. Oh, they're beautiful. Now, tell me, does this look like random chance? Random doesn't form like this. This is absolutely gorgeous artwork by a master designer. Let's look at another one. This is a creature called Volvox. They're found all around here in the springtime. These have been stained to let you see them a little better. And I'm talking about the blue, and some of them are going to be a greenish color. And yeah, we'll just take a look at that one right there. That's a nice specimen right there. See that beautiful thing? Isn't that gorgeous? Now, the little darker circles inside are like the Death Spear here that we have from Star Wars. Those little things are not escape pods. Those are new ones. They're going to be, like, shall we say, born. Uh, they're going to come out, and they're gonna, this thing will disintegrate, and those are going to be new ones, way of reproducing. But little Volvox, they're bright green in real life. But I want to focus on something. Th th this is just remarkable. See the little dots, the tiny little dots. I mean, the really little, little dots that we have here, making up all these. Each one of those dots is an individual organism that they live by linking up with others and they communicate, yes, communicate. It's an algae. They communicate with each other because each one of those dots has two long whip-like tails we call flagella. This thing sits and moves in the water with hundreds and hundreds of flagellas all flapping around. But the thing is, they all communicate with each other and they all flap in a certain pattern to get this thing to spin as it moves through the water. How do they communicate? We have no idea. No way of knowing. An algae communicating with another algae? It's remarkable. I mean, these guys are gorgeous. Let's look at another slide. I mean, you see the design of this stuff? Oh, look at this. This is sort of cool. I can find this. This one's really tiny, so give me a sec here. I'm trying to find... The one little thing I'm after here. I would pick the smallest thing, basically, that I have on a slide and try and show you. Oh, there's the cover slip. Oh, I'm way off. I hope I go to a lower power. There we go. Let me pull this over and let you see this. 
this little square. Now, to understand this, we've got to go to higher power. This is something inside of you. These are bone cells. This is, this is compact bone, bones that make up your skeletal system. The big holes that you see in here, that's where blood vessels and nerves run. What I want to point out to you are all these little dark spots like this. These little tiny, little dark spots. These are called osteoblasts. They're cells that make the bone. Do you see a design here? Do you notice bullseyes? Doesn't a bullseye seem to show a pattern, not random chance? That's what we're looking at here. Let's go to a higher power, let you see even more. Do you see a pattern? They're circles. Does this look random? And these little cracks through here are how capillaries run through here to feed the cells so that they can make the bone. This is a design. This is absolutely beautiful. That's bone cells. Oh, oh we can look at Here's one more. I'll just look at it real quick. And then we'll take a break. But this, this one's been stained so we can see it better. Pine stem. A very young sapling. Sliced. Look at the organization. See the rings? Trees have rings. Here's the bark of the tree, the outer epidermis. These are the, the uh, like, where the sap is collected and kept inside and runs through there. This is the phloem where sugars are moved by photosynthesis from the leaves up and down the tree. Um, these are the xylem cells here that move minerals and water through here. Notice it is all organized. There's a pith in the center. There, does this look random? That is a design. Folks, if there is a design, there is a designer. Darwinian evolution says everything happened by random chance. Does this look like random chance? Let's take a short break and for about five minutes and we'll come back into the next section. I hope you enjoyed that episode. A big thank you is due to our donors for making this ministry possible. Once again, you can become a donor at evidenceforfaith.org slash give. That's evidence, the number four, faith.org slash give. And help us keep this broadcast free. You can also support us by sharing, subscribing, and leaving a review on this podcast. If you would like to hear Michael live, you can also check out our bookings calendar at evidenceforfaith.org or book your own event with Michael. So this is Charlotte signing off. I'll see you on the next episode.